Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst, and this is our final show before next Tuesday, the day previously known as Election Day, but now is called the last day of voting. Happy Fem Friday. Happy anniversary to women's suffrage. This election is 100 years since women were enfranchised in the United States. And if we learned anything this year, we learned that the fight for equity is far from over. Working women everywhere were on the front lines of this pandemic. Nurses and other health workers, teachers and other school workers, flight attendants and other service workers, and of course, all of the unpaid work of women everywhere, childcare, household duties. Gender equity isn't about leaning in. That's asking the victim to be responsible for her own liberation. Gender equity is a class fight to liberate the largest group of exploited workers in America, working women. If Joe Biden wakes up Wednesday as president-elect, it will be because women voted for him in record numbers, as is showing right now. In particular, working women, women of color. What we want in return is for President Biden to attack the systemic causes of gender inequity. Patriarchy is a condition of capitalism. Patriarchy defends entrenched economic advantage. Breaking glass ceilings is nice, but helping the women who are cleaning those glass ceilings is essential, as our previous guest Mindy Easter said. We have to rid capitalism and capitalists of their implicit bias against women. Exploitation comes so naturally when it is the patriarchy exploiting women. This is why we created Matriarch, to find and fund working women to run for office, to help them get through those systemic issues that block them from running successful campaigns, and to support the progressive agenda that will empower working women and, quite frankly, everyone. Joe Biden needs to see the economic revival of this country through the lens of those on the front lines, working women. Forget the pretty and pink feminism of upper-class, mostly white women. This is the gritty gloves and overalls work of, of making the economy work for the least advantaged among us. Bottom-up solutions to this economic crisis from the people feeling it, not top-down solutions, supposed solutions, like the Obama administration had uh, they worked it in 2008 and 2009 after the crisis with Wall Street's Larry Summers and Tim Geithner spearheading our revival. That means adequate health care, Medicare for all. It means higher minimum wages, livable, adjusted to index. It means reliable ch child care. It means a homes guarantee. And by the way, it means restoring labor laws so they protect the right to organize. Because some of the most important unions in this country are run by women and represent workforces of women. Teachers, flight attendants, health and hospital workers, people who are holding up this economy, an economy that has never given them a fair shake. Now we need a president committed to looking after them. We need to convert this election into policies that support working women. Oh, and one last thing. If the Republicans try to steal this election out from under us, we need to be ready to fight back in the strongest way possible. And that may mean withholding from the patriarchs and the capitalists the one thing that they cannot live without. Nope. No, no, no. Not that. That is a Greek play. Go look that up for another time. No, the thing that they can't live without is our labor, the work of our hands and our minds. If this country isn't ready for work from, for us, then we need to be ready to stop working for them. Women of America unite and all of our allies. You have nothing to lose but your patriarch. We have a fabulous show today. I am so excited. We have Tithi Bhattacharya. I'm going to ask her how to pronounce her name properly because everyone that interviewed her said it a different way and I had no reference point. Uh, but I'm a big fan of her book, Feminism for the 99%. It is my Bible. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Make sure to click that subscribe button and that like button. You know the jam. We got to do it. We have to say it. It's part of the, the job now. I am so excited about our next guest. I have been in awe of her work uh, for many years. I do need her to correct the pronunciation of her name so I get it right. But Tithi Bhattacharya, is that, did I get it? Absolutely right. 
What was that? Oh, I think that was absolutely right. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I tried very hard. I listened to all these YouTube. I was like, I listened to many people interview you, but you know, they're all over the place as they are with my name. Um, Of course, uh, Tithi is the author, the co-author of Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto. She is associate uh, professor and director of global studies at Purdue University. And she worked as a main organizer for the International Women's Strike in the United States, which hopefully we will have again soon. Tithi, it is a joy having you on. Um, thank you for, for being here. On, on uh, We start off with the show talking about it's been 100 years since women earned the right to vote in the United States, uh, and we are just a few days before the election, but it doesn't seem like we've solved a lot of our problems. Um, so I want to I wanna talk a little bit about this moment in particular. You know, we are in the midst of an economic recession, possibly worse, uh, wages, there are poverty wages everywhere, inadequate health care, border policing, climate change, a housing crisis. These are the ordinary fears of families. And it seems like it's hitting women the hardest, uh, as it always does, but very, very hard right this second. Um, and it's not being discussed enough through the lens of women and working women um, this election cycle. Is that because this this liberal feminism sort of has sucked up all the oxygen from the room? Well, first of all, Namiki, thank you so much for having me on the show. And um, thank you for making time for talking about this. Because, you know, as you correctly point out, um, so these, these issues loom before us right now, right? But I think uh, if we go back to what you just said, um, has not been seen enough from the lens of women. Uh, well, actually, the election is all about women, right? I mean, everybody is talking about, yes. you know, women being in power, you know, for the first time, a woman is head of CIA, women are, uh, you know, in in um, positions uh, of power as CEOs. So people are talking about women. But what people are not talking about, as you correctly uh, pointed out, is working women, right? The ordinary women who are watching this show, who are at home struggling to make ends meet, whose uh, poverty wages combined with the lack of uh, childcare or any infrastructure of childcare in this country um, is is creating an unbelievable crisis in, in families across the board right now. So... That is, so I think we have to be very clear that if liberal media talks about women, we have to ask which women, right? Is it the women who have the right to close those borders, drone bomb mm. our sisters in other countries, um, uh, preside over these poverty wages in the workplace? Are we talking about those women and are we celebrating the achievement of those women is this about Gina Haspel and uh, you know um, and and lean in feminism, mm-hmm. or are we talking about the women who are the victims of these policies? Uh, and actually, I, I use the word victim uh, advisedly. They want us to be victims of this policy, but we are the survivors of these policies, mm-hmm. and we are the resistors of these policies. So let's talk about those women. Um, when we talk about women's issues or feminist issues, because feminism is a set of politics. It's not about women achieving power, but it is about the vast majority of women resisting the power uh, which which tries to control our lives. You you start off the book, I'm so happy. I mean, it was was a great way to start off the book, uh, talking about Facebook COO uh, Sheryl Sandberg, and, and I'm quoting your book saying, Uh, In the spring of, first words of the book, in the spring of 2018, Facebook COO Sheryl Sandberg told the world that we should, quote, it would would be a lot better off if half of all countries and companies were run by women and half of all homes were run by men, end quote. Um, And then you later say she, as a leading exponent of corporate feminism, Sandberg had already made a name and a buck for herself by urging women managers to lean in at the company boardroom and as the former chief of staff of U.S. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, the man who deregulated Wall Street, she had no qualms about counseling women that success won through toughness in the business world was the royal road to gender equality. This is what, I mean, reading that again today uh, stood out to me in this crisis because in 2008, 
Joe Biden and Obama Biden administration appointed Larry Summers and Tim Geithner to oversee the crisis from the top up. Yet this crisis is it, it can't be handled the same way. I mean, I even think that Joe Biden may realize that whether or not he believes in, he, I don't think he has a choice. So what would you say at this moment are is the leverage that working women, union leaders, uh, union uh, unions that are, are led by women, unions that are made up of women. What leverage do they have in this moment, potentially with the Biden administration? Let's just start with that. So, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen uh, Susan Faludi's uh, piece in the New York Times this morning. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Susan Faludi. I think uh, you know, a backlash was a formative uh, text. Um, as I was trying to shape my uh, feminism. But one of the things she says is that, uh, you know, she she actually talks very powerfully in this uh, New York Times piece about um, uh, Trump's machismo. And she argues that even though people say that this is a vintage machismo, you know, borrowed from uh, uh, World War II kind of, you know, Iwo Jima, go rah rah bomb everyone kind of thing it is actually a very modern machismo uh trump's machismo is a very modern kind of masculinity and that part is very powerful but then she also goes on to argue that um if if um if we want to talk about a certain kind of masculinity we have to talk about a masculinity that takes into account care and Mm. service oriented masculinity right that's not about uh, hitting people over the head uh, uh, or, or bombing people. It's about care and um, caring for communities and collectivities. And she s- writes this in the Times this morning that Biden actually embodies that um, that um, uh, th- that model of mus- masculinity. And I was uh, distressed to read yeah. that. <laughs> I was you. very distressed to read that because... You know, I've been writing about care and care work for a while now. And um, to me, uh, you know, the statements, uh, forget Biden's history in uh, backing segregation, forget Biden's history in the crime bill, in the um, drone attacks throughout the Obama, 80 years of Obama administration, through the immigration policies where Obama deported so many people. I mean, I'm forgetting all that, but just at this moment, with a fantastic uh, BLM uprising uh, across our towns and cities, um, uh, after the terrible, terrible shooting in in Philadelphia two days ago, Joe Biden, the Democratic, uh, you know, nominee, the presidential candidate, comes up and says, "What we have to be careful about is looting." Okay, that to me is not a model of care. That to me is misrepresenting care. Care is about collective um, healing. Care is about whether our communities have resources, whether our communities have schools, whether women in these communities um, have, have not just have good jobs to bring up their children, but have safe neighborhoods for their children to go to school have a, a, a safe um, uh, passage from school to home rather than from school to prison, right? right so right. that's what we call care, you know? So to me, this feminist washing of Joe Biden is quite distressing because it tells me that uh, there there will be challenges for us as a left with the Biden presidency, and we cannot let our guard down. You know, if we're voting for Biden in these elections just to get Trump out, we cannot let lose our tools of critical thought and lose our tools of analysis with a Biden presidency. In fact, we should sharpen them because we're going to need it the most with the recession coming and a pandemic looming. So this summer, uh, as you mentioned, the BLM uprisings, it it seemed as if the class consciousness around BLM um, and the legacy of 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 slavery that is intrinsically tied to capitalism was started to spread in a way to to folks who may not have been as aware of it. And I look at this moment and think, well, what, what would it take for us as a collective women as a collective to understand that capitalism uh, predatory, you know, forms of capitalism. It, it, it's it's 
it's built off of exploiting women. I mean, how do we get to that point? So, I mean, I, I think you mentioned uh, you mentioned unions before, and you're talking about collectivities. And I think it's really quite significant that the greatest tool that working women have, um, the, the strike, it was uh, Sarah Nelson of the Flight Attendants Union in, in January of 2019 who first mentioned uh, the general strike as a weapon to to talk about, uh, to, to stop Trump from going ahead and shutting down the government, right? Um, and I think that has been discussed in recent times as well. You know, if, if Trump tries to hijack the elections um, uh, after November 3rd, then working people should, um, should talk about um, a, a general strike. We should organize. And I mean, it, just to be clear, even if there isn't a general strike um, and, and if folks uh, if Trump is trying to hijack the elections, I think we should organize in our communities um, at the very least, you know, because uh, this is this will be uh, an unprecedented thing to happen in in any um, circumstances need to be opposed. But to go back to your question, so I think workplaces and shutting down the workplaces, which is the motor of capitalism, is a very important um, tool that we as uh, workers have in this system. But I don't think our analysis needs to stop at the doors of the workplace and only pay attention to the wage gap or to unemployment figures, because then we fail to see the multiple ways in which um, wage work actually orchestrates the unwaged slices of our lives, you know? So um, uh, ecologists, I like to... Um, 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 use as a model, they use the term cascade effect, right? Mm -hmm. as, as a concept to understand how primary extinction of a species can actually trigger um, multiple secondary extinctions, mm -hmm. right? So I think that the wage, uh, the capitalist wage, um, the, the tyranny of it has a similar cascade effect on our ability to live our lives. And this is most evident in the lives of women and most evident in the lives of women of color. So if we consider the health of black women and Latinas during this pandemic, low wages certainly, you know, determine the kind of health care uh, these women have had or whether they've had it at all. But we should not only be concerned about low wages in the here and now. Historically, black communities have been forced to live in neighborhoods that have poor air quality, and or contaminated water. Black communities are 75% more likely to live near polluting industries, right? And, and women in these communities bear the brunt right. of these sort of historic tendencies of oppression. So we can't simply talk about wages when it comes to women because unwaged labor of women hold up half of society. So it right. is the precondition to the wage. And not to mention, I mean, just just while you're, I have a memory of Cori Bush, who um, was was recently uh, won the nomination in St. Louis against a a, a long, decades long uh, congressman named Lacey Clay, part of the establishment, and she during her campaign she ended up what she thought getting COVID, but when she went to the hospital twice, the doctor said, well, we don't know. I actually saw her in the hospital, hooked up to the ventilator. So of course, this is COVID. She's, they didn't diagnose me. Sure enough, um, there are countless reports coming out now about how women of color, black women across America are going into the hospital and not being taken seriously when it comes to COVID, um, which, of course, uh, illustrates another issue that we face in the healthcare system. So this is, it, it seems like we're primed for some form of a general strike, um, Women-led, uh, whether whether they don't want to or not, it's 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 those uh, frontline communities um, workers that could show up for a strike and withhold their labor. But simultaneously, you know, there is an opportunity to talk about these other systemic issues in a way that when the the Black Lives Matter uprising suddenly people start to understand their racial bias in a way that they had never been educated in school or in their communities or nobody around them, you know, white uh, white liberals weren't even aware. Um, what would it what kind of coalition building do we have to... I mean, it's it's very hard when you have this liberal Clintonian-style, Hillary Clinton-style feminism. Um, and, and, and I, I, you know, I 
would have to mention the Women's March. Like, it seemed like when they the Women's March was being organized, they understood the need for a coalition to organize around what was probably, I would say, some progressive... Um, a progressive platform for women, but it it seemed to be taken over by this greater narrative, this more powerful narrative um, of white women's feminism. So how do we build a coalition without that happening? So I think one of the things we argue in the book, um, the manifesto, is that just like we are talking about a feminism for the 99%, it is very vital that we talk about an anti-racism of the 99%, right? So Kamala Harris getting one of the top tickets of the uh, of the land uh, in order to be in the White House is not a victory for ordinary uh, working class black women, okay? It is certainly a victory for historical uh, wrongs being justed, just okay? So that, I, I let's, let's be very clear, to see a black woman in the White House um, in in America was unimaginable. So there is, there is certainly a, a, a sense of achievement there, which we cannot underestimate, right? But we also cannot say that being in the White House is a positive thing, because mm-hmm. the White House is symbolic of the heart of American empire, okay? It is the heart of neoliberal austerity. The policies coming out of the White House are not going to be policies that talk about how to better the lives of ordinary working class black women, okay? Whether a black person is in the White House or not, as we saw during the uh, Obama era, right? We saw black poverty actually went up in the eight years of, of Obama's administration. But I was in Grand Park in Chicago in the night of, um, you know, uh, 2008 uh, with my three-month-old infant daughter mm-hmm. just because it was such an exciting women a moment for um, millions of uh, Black women that night that, you know, to be part of that was was being part of history. But we knew as socialists and activists that Obama was not going to be our friend in in the work uh, in the White House. So I think when we talk about coalition building, we have to start from the bottom. We mm. cannot depend on the top. Okay, that's right. So that's the first thing that we can't. There, no one's going to come to rescue us. We're going to have to do this ourselves. That's the first thing. We don't look for saviors from above. The second thing is that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are actually histories of organizing that uh, that we have in this country. We've seen the brilliant BLM uprisings throughout the summer and continuing even today. Okay, mm-hmm. there it, there lies our resources for hope. Okay, now imagine right now the 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 uprisings are uh, sort of responsive to particular uh, police acts of police violence, etc. But I can see, I can imagine a network building up between the activists in various cities and and certain some of those networks already exist movement for black lives already exists, right. So those networks becoming effective in the in the next four years is, is very vital. The second is 9 million people have died of COVID in this country. Okay, but 12 million people are in unions. So, Mm. you know, we have to keep those numbers in mind. And those 12 million people who are in organized unions can stand up and speak for the 9 million people who have been neglected and and left to die, essentially, by by the Trump uh, Trump administration. So I think we have, uh, you know, really wonderful histories of uh, labor organizing in this country. We have wonderful histories of anti-racist organizing in this country. What we need right now is a national conversation that links together uh, workplaces with community activism, okay? So unions cannot simply talk about waged work because it's gonna leave out this entire history of uh, race and gender oppression that has uh, that is vital right now, and and it's 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 in people's minds, it's in our lives, um, and and um, 
unions have the collective power to actually have that conversation. And similarly, community activists need to think of ways to ally to labor, organize labor and, and, and uh, make that happen. Uh, before we go, can I just ask you a little about uh, internationalism through the feminist lens, what that looks like? So I <laughs> I was recently working with uh, my friends and comrades at Code Pink, and one of the things I said was, you know, if I could have a soundbite on what a feminist foreign policy looks like, then my soundbite would be, there are no feminist bombs, just as there are no feminist borders, right? Mm-hmm. So an international internationalism has to be at the beating heart of feminism right we cannot have liberation of women even liberation of black and brown women in the united states if that liberation comes at the cost of empire abroad right so we cannot have a welfare state a robust welfare state program okay let's say we get a robust welfare state program uh, in the United States that really caters to the needs of black and brown women. Okay, we have a good child work, uh, child uh, care system and universal child care system and so on. But we cannot have that if America's power and the money of that is dependent on imperial interests abroad. Okay, so that kind of gain, you know, I, I was in Copenhagen last year and um, it, you know the, the 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 heart of social democracy, uh, wonderful uh, maternity and paternity leaves for working parents, wonderful healthcare for everyone, and immigrant Muslim families living in ghettos. Okay, right. so that cannot be our feminism. Our feminism has to be internationalist and anti-imperialist in order to be the kind of feminism for the 99% that we need at this moment badly. Is, is there one place or one group or, or, or one moment in time to reference? For feminism for the 99%? Well, I mean, I mean, internationalist feminist. I mean, it's if, if Copenhagen, and I'm very familiar, like, if, if they're not it, then then who do we look to? Well, I think we look to the international feminist strike movement right. that began in 2017, you know, right Which now. Which you were a part of. Let's, yeah. Well, yes, I was a very small part of in, in the United States, but it was it was so fantastic, because, and it still is, that because it was precisely the kind of international cooperation and networks from below, you know, mm. that joined together to make March 8th uh, shut down several cities across the world. Okay, and and remember one of the 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 slogan that united us all was solidarity is our weapon. Right. Mm-hmm. So, international solidarity and the international women's strike. I'm so um, so energized to see Poland actually going on strike right now. Polish women because of their abortion ban. I'm right. so energized to see uh, Chilean, um, uh, them voting for the democracy, uh, the, the new constitution, constitution. The anti-dictatorial constitution, and the movements on the streets being led by women. So I think the we need to reinvigorate the question of the women's strike here in the United States and kind of join up with our sisters abroad um, in in a movement of international solidarity. I have so many more questions for you. <laughs> but unfortunately, we ran out of time. But I would, I mean, if, if you're open, we'd love to have you on again, maybe once we have a sense of what's going to happen uh, in yeah, this election world. Be but it's Thank been such an honor. Uh, Tithi Bhattacharya, right? Correct. Okay, got it. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. We will be right back uh, after this break. Hey guys, welcome back. I want to go over some of the stories at the top of my news feed, uh, which we are doing mid-roll today uh, because of t- some timing issues. So here are some of the stories from the top of my feed. According to a Bloomberg report, 80% of people who left the workforce this August and September, 80% were women. 
The study finds that the decision to leave work is one that women make reluctantly on the basis of pressure from family inflexible workplace policy and a lack of public policy support. That's why unions exist. While daycare remains cost prohibitive for many women, the pressure to juggle work and family care remains high, and it results, especially during crises like COVID, in forcing women out of the workplace. Latest from the neoliberal land, Neera Tanden, my favorite, responded to a recent New York Times piece about a Michigan County's further shift blue by arguing that, quote, wine moms are the political stronghold that can, I can't say with straight face, that can't be underestimated. Let's look at the evidence. The trope of politically powerful suburban wine mom is wielded by centrists and Trump supporters alike as the only narrative of women and female empowerment. But many of the women making a big impact in Michigan politics are progressive working class women, maybe even union members. The shift in Oakland County, Michigan can be partially attributed to a demographic shift towards greater racial diversity, according to the New York Times. Politics across the state, as we observed earlier this week, has been driven by progressive women like Rashida Tlaib. It is not the suburban resistance getting out the progressive vote. It's actually resistance from the left, where the original resistance was. <laughs> Near a tandem. Drinking wine while she's tweeting. Wine moms. I love wine. <sighs> Giving wine a bad name. <laughs> okay. Healthcare workers are suing OSHA and the Trump labor secretary, alleging that they have been endangered by inadequate COVID-19 protections. They raise the important point that frontline workers are placed in danger by the government's lack of support. The unions filling the suit... File, excuse me, filing this suit, encompassing American Federation of Teachers and the Washington State Nurses Association, among others, represent over 500,000 healthcare professionals. This is huge. Working women, working people are on the front lines of this resistance, not wine moms. All right, we have a wonderful panel to get started. Before we go to the panel, while we're getting them in the room, uh, we are going to be doing an election show on Tuesday, so make sure to mark your calendars, same time, same place, 3 o'clock till 4 o'clock Eastern. But we're also going to be uh, tuning in live at different times throughout the day, just highlighting different stories. We're not going to go live all day, all night. We're just going to sort of tune in. So if you haven't already done so, click that alert in the um, that little bell next to subscribe, and that's how you're going to get alerts. And we'll say things like live from the streets of the protests, or you know, live with an election historian, so you know what you're getting. Uh, but you, this is the time to subscribe. This is the time to click that alert, and this is the time to be a patron. Patron. So join us at patreoncom slash Key Show. All right, guys, we've been uh, promoting this Matriarch Summit all week. I am thrilled to have two very important members of the Matriarch team on board uh, who have been actively planning and working with candidates. Uh, make sure to click your mute button off. All right, we have Dominique Shimanova, who is the political director for Matriarch, and Malahat Rafai, who is the, I probably said her name wrong for the 9,000th time, she is on the board of Matriarch, and she works in politics. She works with working women. She helps get them elected. She works with Katie Porter, for example. And uh, and I'm just really grateful to have you guys here to talk a little bit about what Matriarch is as we roll into this big summit. So I'm, I'm going to start with um, Dominique, since she uh, runs day-to-day. -day. <laughs> She's like, I have a summit to plan right now. Why are you putting me on camera? <laughs> um, so Dominique, I mean... Tell us a little bit about your experience, uh, as, as obviously as quickly as possible, just yep. working with the campaigns and candidates and the types of candidates that Matriarch uh, you know, represents. Well, it feels like we're a new organization, but now it's been a little more than a year since we launched. So we have been through just about a full cycle um, with our candidates this year. Obviously, the thrill, uh, the biggest thrill of all was watching Cori Bush win. Um, she's just, I can't wait to have her in Congress. I just get shivers every time I hear her speak. She's so incredible and so, so amazing. I just think she's going to blow us all out of the water and be just so transformative in that role. Um, but we learned a lot from, from all of our candidates and Melahat and I specifically worked really closely with them and all of their teams every step of the way, even as a pandemic hit and we had to completely switch up, you know, how do you fundraise during a pandemic? How do you do feel during a pandemic? Um, and it was incredible to build that community together and to, and to be a part of it. So it's been a privilege. 
Malahat, um, you know, matriarch has a different type of candidate, right? We we don't wait until they raise $250,000 or start, you know, really build on the ground operations. We try to work with them early so that they can get to that level where even progressive organizations and institutions support them. And, you know, maybe a Bernie Sanders can endorse. But this early, the, the setting up the framework of a solid campaign is, is a lot harder, especially if you're not you know, if you're a first-time candidate. So tell me a little bit about, like, the kind of work that you've done with these campaigns who, you know, like, they're just average people. They're not, like, you know, political operatives. They're not, you know, pulled from obscurity to go run a DCCC, whatever they do. Well, they're community members, and they're engaged. They're generally not independently wealthy, or else, you know, uh, they could be running their campaigns the way they want to. I think that early start is the most important thing we can do. All of these organizations that wait, um, you're letting really like solid people pass by because they don't understand the process and the politics of politics. So getting them started early, making sure, you know, I've never heard anybody say, gosh, I had way too much time to campaign. I had way too much time to raise money. Oh my gosh. I just didn't know even what to do with myself. No one needs a shorter runway when they're doing this. And those candidates, who weren't successful this time, that was not their only run. It's the first run. And then, you know, they have to be set up to run for for either maybe local office if they're not running for Congress because their leadership matters. And and I'm, I love being part of Matrix because we are on the ground dealing with folks and helping them make these decisions that nobody else was in the room with us when we had these difficult uh, decisions to make, uh, running campaigns against the grain, against the establishment, you know, before it was cool to do so, before there were organizations like Matrix to not just support the candidate, but also the campaign staff that's probably doing this for the first time too. Right. I mean, that that's actually an interesting point. So a lot of progressive candidates that are running now, and especially if they're working class women, you know, they're inspired to run. They're members of their community. They're fed up. They're sick and disgusted with their leadership. I mean, pretty much every single one of our candidates said that. All of them, I think, said it. Um, but, you know, they jump in the race and 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 they're thinking like it's like Mrs. Miss Smith goes to Washington. It's just going to kind of come together. And I think a lot of women are are. It's, it's very hard. Like, most of them had to take a pay cut, not work. Some were working while they were running for office, which is a full-time job in itself. And they didn't have the staff support, at least until, like, the full staff support until the end, maybe, to run a fully a campaign of full potential. So, um, you know, Melahat, you mentioned, like, not knowing what to do and how how some of these big names and progressive organizations may not see how hard. Can you just talk through like what kind of specific things stand in the way of of these women? I'll tell you, number one, it's fundraising. It's really hard to raise money. I work for women and I work with men, um, always progressives, always forward thinking folks, but I see it day to day. Um, how it's so much easier for the men to get that money. It's really strange. Women have to ask more times and more often and have to qualify their ask. Women are asked questions that men are not asked. Well, what are you going to do with your kids if you're Sacramento or if you're going to D.C.? These are not questions that are ever asked of men who are fathers or planning on being fathers. Um, but I think what we can do, though, again, it's, it's the knowledge, like what to not waste their time on. You, you make sure the candidates are doing what they need to be doing at the time that's relevant. Right now, you know, I've got 10 races we're working on locally, and I tell everybody, your number one priority between now and 8 p.m. on Tuesday is voter contact voter contact, and then a little bit more voter contact. <laughs> I don't care if the voter's upset because they've been texted by everybody. If they're upset about it, they can vote early, and they'd be off everyone's list, you know? But it's having that sort of information on what to do with your time, rather than sitting, you know, responding to every ridiculous Facebook post or Twitter post, responding to non-media media, you know, using your time wisely. We have one candidate in every one of these races, and they can't be duplicated. And, you know, like I said, I think Dominique and I were really helpful to these campaigns during this pandemic, because a lot of us were figuring that out as we go. Mm-hmm. You don't have that army of volunteers that normally happens with these grassroots, groundswell progressive candidates that could knock on doors and do a lot of that work. So being there to guide them through, help them make decisions on the little slim, you know, budgets that they had, I, I feel like uh, is probably the best thing we could have done for them. Dominique, what's what's your take on that? What, what do you think is uh, some of the boundaries that, especially the first-time candidates women face when, um, you know, I'm, I'm just to throw out some examples, like, yeah. 
getting media, for instance, like no one takes, I'll just say from my perspective as a candidate, former candidate myself, no one takes you seriously in the beginning. They keep setting benchmarks for you. First, it's like, oh, she's not going to do well. And then like you qualify, you raise the money to, to like get on the ballot, you get on the ballot. Okay, now she's on the ballot. Oh, well, she's not going to get on the debate stage. Oh, then you qualify to get on the debate stage. Then they're on the debate stage. And then they're like, well, you know, they're not going to be able to organize the whatever. And then the media doesn't cover you. And then suddenly the media is like, they're horrible. They're not qualified. Like, they cover you, but they cover you from this, like, horrible perspective and sometimes worse. But, Dominique, I mean, like, you have worked with so many progressive yeah. women. In hindsight, it, it kind of kills me because I feel like Samelis is actually the prime example of this for me. And there was even Samelis Lopez, Lopez. Mm-hmm. Yep, who was running in New York 15 to fill an empty seat, and it was a very crowded race. And she did end up getting Bernie's endorsement, but, of course, like, early voting had already started by that point, and she did get AOC's endorsement. Um, but I think she wasn't taken seriously and people were saying, oh, we have to vote for the other guy or it'll be this really horrible guy. And then she got, you know, she outperformed. Uh, she got seven times what they had pulled that she would get in terms of votes, you know. Um, and I feel like if if you believe, then it is possible. And uh, and early money is everything and early support is everything. Uh, but she's somebody that we endorsed when they had like $14,000 in the bank and, and when people weren't taking her seriously. So that help can go a really long way. And that. Uh, helping to get that media attention. But yeah, raising a million dollars doesn't just happen. And getting media attention just because you've decided to announce that you're running for Congress also doesn't just happen. Um, And you are competing for that money and you're competing for those volunteers. And how do you build that sense when you don't have a campaign office and something, a a sense of community and a sense of appreciation for your volunteers? And like, there's no pizza and beer and whatever to make them feel uh, like they're a part of something. And so uh, in the Zoom age, trying to build that is is hard. And of course, if you have access to wealth and wealthy friends, and then you can live income free for a year, or you don't have to give up your apartment and move back in with your parents when you're in your 40s, just so that you can run for Congress. Uh, The sacrifices on a personal level that I've seen every single one of these women, uh, and I I was a campaign staffer, then a campaign consultant prior to being in this role with Matriarch, uh, I've had a front row seat to just how difficult it is for women and for progressive women, especially, and working class progressive women even more so, um, just to run at all and to get any attention and to be taken seriously. You know, you say that because I, I, there is something that happens also in campaigns if you have like a crowded field like Samelis's race in, in New York, you know, you, so say you finally do raise enough money to have a campaign manager. They might not be the most in-demand campaign manager or other staff because the other campaigns have taken them because the other campaigns had that corporate money or, imp- sure. you know, individual money. So, you know, we've never it, seen anything like this. The sheer number of candidates oh running. Gosh, Not only awesome. were there empty seats, but you've also got, you know, a lot of people running for the first time, which is really awesome, and a lot of progressives running. Uh, if anything, there's a concern with maybe like too many progressives in a given race. Um, you know, in one race, means- you mean. Yeah, in one race, right? If you've got, it's not just like AOC was the first challenge to Crowley in 14 years. Okay, great. But imagine there were five people challenging Crowley at the same time, right? They're more likely to just split that vote and he's more likely to win. So that's what we've been experiencing since AOC. There's a lot of people who think that they might be able to be the next AOC. uh, And there's definitely, you know, crowded fields happening, but they are then competing, you know, someone like me that's managed campaigns before, um, there's just aren't, aren't enough of us to go around. So you're taking someone that's been like, maybe a volunteer, like maybe a field organizer, and they're getting promoted for the first time. And even if you've done it many times, it's a very isolating role to be uh, in charge of a campaign just as much as if uh, as being a, a, a candidate. And so providing that community is something that Matriarch was able to do. And I think it, it, it goes on and it continues. The movement continues past past election day and beyond any electoral cycle. And so does that sense of community that, of what we've built. So it's great just to see you guys and Melahut, especially. I miss you. <laughs> it's so fun. It was and so I fun mean, to have our meetings uh, with the candidates and get to provide them that support together. We're on opposite coasts, but I feel like we have such a bond. And Melahut, I mean, that's 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 such a, an interesting point, like where the campaigns, um, because there's such a shortage of, of progressive staff, experienced progressive staff, because there just hasn't been this kind of you know, when we talk about the blacklist, the blacklist has always existed. It wasn't like an official thing. It was just called, you're not part of the DCCC. You're on the outside. You're working with the challenger. It may not be progressive, but you're working with the challengers. So there's this there's this lack of infrastructure support everywhere. Institutional support on the progressive side, uh, uh, staffing. People are learning very quickly. And I think that's why your role was so valuable, because instead of, you know, a lot of these campaigns never had uh, general consultants or even campaign managers full-time. And we were able, you, I should say, because I wasn't, um, 
you were able to advise them in a way that a general consultant would. And essentially, I, I not the legal term of it, but pro bono, essentially, because it's not um, because you weren't there full time. And so you could help more candidates in a way that a general consultant would normally and charge them 10 grand a month and, you know, all the other things that they do. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, I think that's one of the biggest roadblocks for progressive candidates that are coming, you know, there there is the politics of politics and the establishment within the Democratic Party that we're always fighting. I mean, uh, Kevin DeLeon, when he ran against Diane Feinstein, all of a sudden he's popular again. We're like, we told you so. Yeah. Like, two years ago. We tried to challenge this woman then. We hugged Lindsey Graham. Like, hi, we were there. Um, you know, it doesn't fit our matriarch, you know, model for Kevin, but I mean, point being that we've always been fighting the establishment. It's not fair. I don't think it's fair that only uh, candidates who can afford it can get this advice. I mean, I genuinely believe my role is to just try to uh, get those folks who are grassroots who want to get their involved in politics to understand what the ugly world they're getting into. Like just, hey, you're not going to have any friends. You're going to call them all for money. And they're going to yeah. stop picking up your phone calls. You don't know what you're getting And that you're not in your own head. I feel like, again, the lonely world of campaign management the voices in your head are the majority of who you're talking to. So being able to have a group for them to be able to bounce ideas off of and, and know that I think is, is really helpful. So I'm honored to have been part of it uh, with Dominique. She was just, I mean, pregnant with a kid and running all this stuff. Like oh my God, the embodiment of what we do, the embodiment of what we do. Um, real quick before we go, uh, Mel, I'll start with Dominique. Dominique, what was your, the story from one of the candidates that stuck, stood out with you the, for you the most? Like, they, they all had such powerful stories, either their background or what happened during the campaigns. But just to give folks a, a sense of, like, what really, um, yeah. you know, what these women are taking on and what they're sacrificing. I think the women who were running without health insurance became, like, you know, really in stark focus once once the uh, pandemic hit. And uh, that included Samelis and Nabila. Samelis is also in a, in a very densely populated district in the South Bronx that was disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that was, uh, that was very powerful that they were willing, in some cases, to give up having employer uh, self in, uh, health insurance in order to run, which is just such an enormous uh, sacrifice. And Corey, who won, I'm just so inspired by the fact that she just never let anything throw her off her game. Anyone who's watching this, who's a progressive, they know, you know, that they throw all kinds of stuff at you to try and distract you. I mean, her car got shot up at one point. Actually, Melanie Dorigo also had the most horrible language thrown at her, death threats, and just like kept focused on putting one foot in front of the other. And I'm so inspired by that. Melha, what was uh, one of the moving stories that you you heard? There were so many. I mean, seeing the women when COVID hit and seeing what was happening in New York, uh, seeing Melanie's husband in the background, seeing Simula with her headphones in a very loud apartment, doing whatever it took to communicate, and then and then seeing what happened to the women on the West Coast, Rebecca in Washington, Ava in in Arizona, how the establishment was focused on attacking them. Uh, you know, they, they were harder on them than the Republicans were. Yeah. So you know, just they, has, having that perseverance to push through and and be in it together. Together. Um, honestly, for me, being on the West Coast, I, I let my clients do a lot of we, what we saw happening on the East Coast, seeing the experiences of those gathering signatures in New York. Those aren't things that we do in California on the ballot, you know, and that happened right in the in the heart of, of this pandemic when New York was being shut down. So much perseverance, so much resilience. And I do are running again, whether it's for that seat or another seat, taking over their local Democratic parties, making them more progressive, because that's going to be our call to make sure we get past this election, God willing, goddess willing, get Joe Biden elected and then move the party to as far left as we possibly can. We have to start holding them hostage. And that happens when we get more numbers because they're controlling the ballot lines they're controlling the rules they're controlling everything that's really hindering us. And when people say like, oh, no, me, you talk about reform all the time. Listen, I'm so frustrated the Democratic Party. I want. But. I also understand the rules of the Democratic Party, and they're a hindrance to us. So we have to really hold them hostage in the same way, on the outside and on the inside, the way that Malahat does and Dominique does. Um, real quick, I want to share my the story that you just mentioned uh, getting on the ballot. Asan Lakey, I mean, she never showed any frustration, but they were really gunning for her because that is a powerful seat in Massachusetts. And... Uh, she, you know, whether trying to block her from getting on the ballot, which is a big thing that they do in the Northeast, um, or just kind of Alex Morse style tactics against her that also did not get the attention, maybe because uh, for whatever reasons. I mean, there was a, a big coalition behind Alex Morse, but, you know, Isan Lake is also a Muslim woman. And I think um, sometimes the press, I mean, I can speak from my own experience, sometimes the press just doesn't want to hear it. 
And I think that's one thing with matriarch we're really trying to do is to create a sisterhood so we have each other's backs when things go wrong because it's it's very hard to break through the press when they are aligned with capital, when they're aligned with institutions that want to make sure progressive women are not front and center talking about their stories in Congress. Much love to you all. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, uh, make sure to get your tickets to the Matriarch Summit. Let's put that that uh, thing on screen again, the graphic on screen, starting at $27. Uh, some of the speakers, Dominique, do you want to roll them with me? Let's let's go through. Oh, no, I'm not looking at my list. <laughs> well, we no, can it's on screen. It's on oh, screen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Corey Bush uh, needs no introduction. Sarah Nelson, uh, Barbara Smith, basically invented intersectional feminism. Uh, Francesco Fiorentini, I've been a huge fan for years, as I'm sure you have too. That's one of our candidates there, Melanie DiRigo, big fighter for the working class uh, on Long Island. Uh, Nabila Islam in Georgia. Eileen Flanagan, who's going to tell us how we can uh, help prevent a coup. Devonka <laughs> Beckles, um, who we've worked closely with uh, on our board of advisors with Matriarch, who's also running for office out in California. Um, we've got Marquita Bradshaw, Kate um, Albright-Hanna, uh, Jane McAlevey, also total legend, uh, Christine Pellegrino, and Tara Huska, who is a tribal attorney and the advisor to Bernie Sanders on Indigenous Affairs. Awesome. Special thanks to Professor Harvey Kay and everyone in the live chat. Uh, make sure to listen to Harvey and I have a conversation about why Bernie Sanders should not be Labor Secretary. Important, important, important. So make sure to listen to that um, on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. I think we have to do an addendum as to why Elizabeth Warren should not join the Treasury because we don't want to lose a Senate seat. Oh, there's my, <laughs> I just gave that one away. Um, special thank you to Midi Doctors and Jules for working the algorithms and Socially Democrat, thank you for the love. Big thanks to Bob and Chokin for keeping the chat room honest. We will see you on election day. Mark your calendars if you haven't already. Click the subscription, the alert, the bell, so you know when we're going live, but we're going to do a special show on Tuesday, and then we're going to come in a couple of times during the night uh, just to cover what's going on. If you haven't voted already, my God, go vote in person. Uh, drop off, if you have a mail-in ballot and you didn't send it in time, drop it off to the Board of Elections or to the location that is provided on your mail-in ballot where you can drop it off, even if you're in New York, even if you're in, a, in California. Whoops. <laughs> I'm so passionate, <laughs> Greek woman, with their talking with their hands. Even if you're in those states, we need to show as many votes as possible, as Sam Cedar says, 10 million, so that if the Supreme Court is deciding on, like, you know, some small town in Wisconsin and the mail-in voting in that county, that they understand that there's a 10 million person advantage and, and that they they are, you know, they all have their own personal politics, as we know. So, all right, much love to you all. Go check out the Matriarch Summit, and we will see you on Tuesday. <laughs>